Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, my guest today, Morgan Williams Jr., is an assistant professor at NYU. He's at the uh, Robert Wagner Graduate School of Public Service right now. Um, he is the the co-author of a, a great new sort of uh, policy brief on police staffing levels um, and has a number of other, uh, you know, sort of uh, relevant papers in, in related areas. Uh, really excited to talk to him. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Matt. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for extending the invitation. Okay. Um, so, you know, let's, let's get into it. Um, this is a latest thing is a sort of a, a brief you you wrote at Niskanen Center that's mm-hmm. based on I think a, you know more academic-y uh, kind of paper and it tries to look at what happens when cities um, grow the size of their police force and yes. uh, well what I mean more than one thing happens but <laughs> what, what what do people need to know about this? Well, sure thing. So I, I think one thing that's kind of important, right, is that we're having this larger conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, on what to how, what to do and how to approach, uh, you know, police reform. Um, you know, obviously, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement over the past few years have kind of positioned this topic within the light, uh, and also the defund movement, right, over the past year or so mm-hmm. has also asked important questions about what is the role of the police. Uh, you know, what are what should our budgetary priorities be when it comes down to the police? And uh, I think in order to kind of to really kind of understand that conversation, it, we have to have some kind of uh, deeper understanding about what exactly are the police doing. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes down to addressing very important, you know, kind of social uh, consequences like homicide victimization, uh, you know, other types of criminal behavior that we might be interested in, in kind of reducing, uh, you know, one of the policy levers that any kind of local municipality has access to is going to be, well, you know, police staffing levels, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's something that they can readily kind of do in order to kind of address, in addition to kind of changing strategies and maybe doing other couple of things uh, in order to readily address homicide and, and some of these other crimes that we're interested in. So uh, basically uh, what we do is that we say, okay, we have this, you know, very good policing literature. Um, empirical and policing literature, you know, that says things like, you know, police employment seems to be very important, going back to the Evans and Owens paper, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Levitt paper, uh, and a few others that say police employment can be important to kind of reducing, you know, serious crime, index crime, uh, and also policing visibility, you know, so just having the police in, in the presence, whether it be after, a, you know, some important event or, uh, whether it be, you know, through hotspot policing or, or some other kind of intervention, uh, these are ways in which, you know, police kind of, you know, 
or at least you know, municipalities can kind of address, you know, local criminal behavior. And so uh, we kind of asked the question of, well, you know, there, you know, there seems to be some reasons why this picture could look a little different uh, when you consider race. Sure. When you start to look at things with respect to race, uh, there could be some differential benefits. Uh, there could also be some things that might concern us or things that we might want to consider, you know, as a potential consequence of, you know, kind of embracing things like uh, police employment. And so uh, one thing that we kind of do within the paper that's uh, somewhat new to the literature is just ask the question of, you know, do black and white communities essentially uh, benefit from the police in similar or different ways? And so uh, there are a number of reasons why you might think that might be the case. Uh, one obvious uh, reason when it comes down to, say, homicide victimization, which is a big priority for, you know, for, for local governments is uh, the fact that, well, you know, African-Americans make up about 13 percent of the population, about 50 percent of the homicides. And so uh, in that way, there might just be, you know, uh, more opportunities to kind of reduce these types of uh, very, very socially costly and, uh, you know, very harmful uh, kind of outcomes. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, we've also seen literature that seems to suggest uh, that there might be, you know, segregation in, in the concentration of street vice or this, you know, other patterns of inequality that might be really, really important. And again, you know, kind of changing the opportunity cost of, you know, what, exactly what the police might ultimately be doing at the end of the day. And also, you know, police, as I kind of alluded to before, well, you know, they might deploy their resources in a, a strategic way. Police chiefs also, you know, receive a great deal of, of pressure uh, when it comes down to having higher homicide rates. And so as a result, uh, maybe if the homicide rate itself is serving as some sort of salient signal um, for what the true crime rate might be, right? Because we have no clue what, you know, crime in its kind of abstract def definition really is, right? Right. I mean, this is a, a, a sort of subtle, right, social science point, but the, the, yeah. the, obviously you can play some games with, with the level of, of homicide, but it's counted fairly rigorously, yeah. you know, dead bodies, whereas we have no idea really what aggravated assaults are happening or, you know, who might be like drinking a beer on the sidewalk. You know, That's correct. The, tons of things are quote unquote crime and yes. most of it's very, very poorly measured. But homicide is a pretty well-defined, pretty well-counted sort of index. No, absolutely. So obviously, uh, local you know, law enforcement agencies all report, you know, homicides to the FBI. So that's kind of one measure that we have, you know, in order to be able to count the number of homicides that take place. And the other is just, you know, vital statistics data, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the CDC, you know, where your local health department uh, who sends those data to the CDC, they uh, also have their counts just based off of death certificates, right? Mm -hmm. And so those numbers tend to line up fairly well. Uh, if you track them over time. So, yeah, so we have a good sense of what homicide rates are and police departments have a good sense of what homicide rates are. And so that usually is a big priority. And so uh, those are some of the kind of like the benefits that we might want to kind of, you know, think about and why they might differ by race. Some of the, but there's also, you know, a kind of other considerations, right? right. So, you know, when you saturate a, a community, um, you know, with a, a heavy police presence, uh, you know, it might improve public safety, but it could also kind of reduce uh, perceptions of legitimacy, Right. Mm -hmm. And we've seen, you know, Tracy Maris and uh, others that have kind of written on this. Even I always like to point to an older article from uh, George Akaloff and uh, Janet Yellen uh, from the mid 90s that kind of, you know, builds on this canonical uh, Gary Becker mod model of uh, crime. 
uh, in which, you know, again, you know, we can basically have some control over the crime that we see and that, you know, we'll kind of measure that according to the marginal benefit of committing the crime is equal to the marginal cost. And so, you know, that that kind of unitary model um, is one in which, you know, uh, uh, Janet and George kind of come along and say, well, you know what, the community also matters, right? The mm-hmm. community matters because of the mere fact uh, that, well, you know, they if they don't see you or your actions as just, right, then they could also kind of participate in the process that leads to the clearing of homicides and, you know, other things. Now, they were focused on gang behavior, but the same kind of concept applies. Um, and so uh, you also kind of, you know, have the consequence of possibly bringing in a disproportionate amount of, you know, disadvantaged members from disadvantaged communities into the criminal justice system. And also just the possibility of uh, racial disparities and the potential use of force, right? Anytime a police officer in a, in a civilian meet, I mean, there's always a possibility that force might be used. And that's something that we certainly do not want to have. And so uh, basically, uh, we kind of, you know, approach the topic uh, empirically uh, by just saying, okay, well, we know, you know, we have a good sense of police employment levels. Uh, as you go from like one, you know, police department throughout the country to the next. And we kind of have a sample of about 242 uh, police departments from large U.S. cities. And we just say, all right, well, let's just see if we can, one, let's see if we can measure the, the uh, racial differences in the public safety returns to increasing a police force. You know, we'll look at it for blacks and whites generally because we can measure it better. Uh, but we also look at arrest patterns. And mm-hmm. with arrest patterns, uh, we'll kind of focus on two things. We focus on uh, index arrests, which are kind of like more serious crime. So, you know, uh, murder, robbery, you know, uh, aggravated assault. So it's like stuff stuff that could generate serious prison sentences. I That's mean, correct. Right. And, yeah. then, and then also, I think we sort of generally agree, right? Like it's it's bad. Yeah, that these crimes are happening. They have victims. It's it's very harmful. And and then your your other category is more like um, I don't know what you would call it. It's sort of disorder. We refer to it as quality life arrest, right? You know, so mm-hmm. uh, you know things like drug possession, liquor law violations, disorderly conduct. Uh, you know, things in which they're usually kind of classified as low level misdemeanors, mm-hmm. uh, and also. As you kind of mentioned already, they, they, it's harder to kind of point out a victim, right? It's not to say that people want these things within their community, right? Uh, but at the same time, you know, it, it's something that is an arrestable offense. And right. so, um, you know, that generally would carry a lighter prison, you know, lighter jail sentence, if any, right? So, I mean, these, you know, kind of, you know, two arrest outcomes are really important because it can tell us, you know, about, you know, what's necessarily happening uh, with respect to, you know, you know, police presence and how it matters and how the police end up kind of tackling the public safety question. Uh, but it also gives us a sense of what happens to people once they're gone, right? So if we see, you know, uh, changes, you know, in, you know, serious crime arrests by race or uh, quality life arrests, you know, these are things that could lead to interactions with the criminal justice system and we want to be able to account for them. Right, absolutely. Um, and, and I think with the, with the lower level uh, crimes also, an important part is that there's a lot of uh, discretion over the yeah. enforcement, right? I mean, the officer can say to you, um, as happened to me in my younger days, like, hey, you got to take that inside. Right. Or they can arrest you, right? And it's 100% up to them. And it opens the door to a lot of uh, discriminatory behavior and, and you know, other, other kinds of things. Um, absolutely. So, so I mean, what what did you see on the on the, the index offenses? 
So let me just start off and just say that w- one thing that's kind of important, right? We, we use two different empirical strategies. I'll just mm-hmm. t- mention one of them because it's really policy relevant, right? And so uh, one empirical strategy that's kind of, again, uh, you know, it's been, you know, studied and examined by, you know, Evans and Owens and others has been uh, just kind of focusing on changes in police empo- employment as due to the COPS program or the uh, Department of Justice's Community Oriented Policing Services uh, right. you know, program in which uh, when you talk to people, they really, you know, you'll be surprised how many don't realize this was a part of the 1994 crime bill. Uh, and the goal of, of the program itself was to basically increase, increase police employment, right? And, and also to, uh, they pretty much distributed block grants to many local police departments throughout the country. Some of them, I'll say more than half of them were generally, high, you know, um, hiring grants, uh, with the rest of them being kind of uh, non-hiring grants that could, you know, involve like investments in technology, mm-hmm. uh, you know, targeted crime initiatives, et cetera. And so, uh, these kind of uh, awards, you know, uh, started to be handed out uh, quite abundantly uh, in the mid 90s. Uh, there was a bit of a slowdown uh, during the Bush administration uh, because there were some concerns that uh, this funding was supplanting existing funding to hire officers. Uh, and then, you know, the Great Recession itself kind of brought about uh, some obviously fiscal pressures, you know, for for many, uh, you know, governments, you know, local governments. And so in order to avoid just mass, you know, layoffs and, you know, with, with respect to policing, uh, you know, the cops, you know, grants were kind of, you know, ramped back up again under the Obama administration and uh, were pretty competitive during that time. So Right. That was part of the uh, the, the, the stimulus bill in, in 2009, right. right, had a big increase in, in cops funding to mostly, I guess, to prevent layoffs rather than increase staffing levels. Exactly. Exactly. And so. So basically, we're going to focus on changes in police employment. We look at, again, we have about 242 cities in our sample, about a 38-year period. Uh, and basically, we're going to say, okay, what happens, you know, when you kind of increase the police force by, you know, by one officer, right? What is the effect of that on homicides? Uh, what is the effect of that on index arrests? What is the effect of that on these kind of quality life offenses that we mentioned before? And one thing that I should kind of keep in mind uh, is that we also, in kind of doing this analysis, we also account for municipal expenditures themselves. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our, you know, our, you know, you know, basically our evidence kind of is, you know, is reflective of the historical opportunity costs uh, of investing in one more officer versus kind of, you know, investing those funds somewhere else, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, we kind of see that as important because, you know, this is kind of a central point within this larger defund debate. You know, I know that when you kind of speak to people, uh, you know, you kind of get different definitions of defund, but generally yes. speaking, mm-hmm. right, we just want to get some sense of what what is what are the returns you know to policing itself at least in this case labor and so uh you asked about index arrest well one thing that we end up finding is that i think the marginal officer makes about uh, one to two fewer index arrest uh what's interesting about this is the mere fact that well these index arrests you know are where we're seeing this effect is generally concentrated among things that are kind of like property related right so uh, motor vehicle theft you know uh you know property theft uh, things that, you know, uh, you know, you would think, you know, p- an increase in police presence would have an impact on, right? You know, the police are out on the street. They can see these types of crimes being committed. Uh, and so, you know, they make about one to two fewer index arrests, you know, on average, you know, but the marginal officer also abates about 18 to 24 index crimes, mm. which is important, right? Because here we're seeing a reduction in arrests on average, uh, but it also a reduction in crime. And so that kind of tells us a little something in terms of what might be going on when you do increase the police force. 
you, what you seem to be seeing is this isn't, you know, the police kind of just locking people off, you know, indiscriminately, and, and they're able to kind of reduce crime in that manner. This is more so just a deterrent story, right, that the police are out on the street and, you know, just their presence alone uh, seems to have some very important benefits in terms of, you know, reducing potential crime within a given area. You know, that, that was something that impressed me a lot, you know, going back maybe 10 years ago when the political conversation was less about policing and and defund wasn't really in the air. But a lot of people I knew were very concerned about incarceration. And, and, you know, I mean, America has a a level of incarceration that's off the charts compared to other countries. And, you know, your work here, it builds on, I think, some some other findings that have tended to, to indicate the same thing, that police employment doesn't necessarily lead to more people being locked up so much as it leads to crimes being deterred. And so from that perspective, I mean, in terms of what the criminal justice reform conversation was at that earlier time, or at least the conversation that I was hearing, it looked like a really kind of nice, you know, sort of win-win, right? Like we could have fewer people in jail and fewer crime victims and more, I don't know, officers walking around and people saying, eh, I don't know, <laughs> maybe, maybe I shouldn't do the crime. Right. Um, and, and that was kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the nice story there. Um, then, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to say nobody was talking about policing in the past. Obviously this was a, a big concern for, for many people and, and many communities, but it wasn't as much on my radar. Um, and so, you know, it, it seemed like such a, such a kind of a, a win-win. Um, and you are, what you guys are able to do is look at the sort of race specific impact, right? I mean, are you only safeguarding white people or, or something like that? Yeah. So what I'll say one thing about, one more thing about index arrests and Mm -hmm. and I'll kind of, you know, speak on the homicide kind of part of it, but, uh, with, with the index arrests, the decline in, you know, we see declines in index arrests for both black and white Americans. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we, the decline for black Americans is about four to six times greater, uh, within our models. And so again, this can, you know, this has the potential, right? Because we're talking about arrests that could possibly carry, um, you know, lengthy prison sentences. Um, you know, we, we're talking about p- the potential for a decline in racial disparities associated with increasing, you know, the police force size in this way. One other thing, you know, I'll kind of mention is, you know, a big part of the story for us is the, you know, impact of, you know, police on homicide victimization. Right. right? And so, again, what we end up doing is that we end up finding that the marginal officer kind of abates about 0.06 to 0.1 homicides mm-hmm. uh, on average. Uh, you know, this is pretty much, you know, the same when you look at it, you know, for both black and white homicide victims. Uh, but what we do notice is that obviously black Americans make up obviously a smaller fraction of the population. And so, uh, if you express this in per capita terms, uh, you know, these effects are about twice as larger. Uh, for black Americans as they are for white Americans. So what does this kind of mean at the end of the day? Well, it means that in order to save one life, you know, according to our estimates, you, you need, you probably need to hire about 10 to 17 officers. And so mm-hmm. we've kind of see that, you know, as, you know, again, you know, a, a positive development in, in, in thinking about the role of police staffing levels, uh, in, in kind of determining public safety. Okay. Uh, let, let's take a break and then I, I want to come back and ask you a couple more questions about that. Yeah, sure thing. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. 
Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So I, I, I just sort of want to like check my understanding of that that per capita finding, right? It's, uh, because uh, what I read here is, um, you know, the, the per capita effect is about twice as large uh, for, for mm-hmm. Black victims. And that just, that just reflects the fact that a very disproportionate share of homicide victims are African-American. And so sort of mechanically, when you pull down the the rate of victimization, it disproportionately uh, reduces black victimization. So what I will say is that, you know, we'll, you know, there certainly are, you know, many more black homicides, you know, that kind of, you know, take place uh, throughout the country relative to all other groups. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there certainly are more opportunities uh, to do so. So, I mean, there, but it, you know, in terms of, how the effects play out. I mean, I, I, in some ways, it's kind of a good thing that the, you know, that's the kind of the marginal impact itself is the same for both black and uh-huh. white victims, right? I mean, if it were, you know, vastly different, we might kind of have a different uh, story here. But it, given that it's about the same, uh, what it tells us is that, yeah, there's probably, you know, a uh, representation story when it comes down to homicide victimization in the U.S. Hmm, right, okay. Yeah. And I mean, you know, obviously not to play, like, naive here because i think we do understand that there's another side of that equation but i mean it is a significant finding on its own terms i mean i think in most other areas of of life if we saw that kind of disparate impact of a social problem uh you know an ability to maybe deal with it effectually um that is itself a big deal you know and i think explains why i mean we're starting to see mayor elections and, and things like that play out and there's a lot of um you know, concern evidently politically about rising, rising homicide levels, uh, in there. But at the same time, you guys look at, um, these sort of quality of life type arrests that, you know, I think have been controversial for a lot of people, um, yeah. in, in a lot of communities. And, and you do see that, you know, 
sort of serious crime goes down, violent crime goes down, arrests for these index crimes goes down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot more um, sort of uh, arrests for, for quality of life violations. Correct. So we, we end up seeing that the marginal officer makes about 7 to 22 additional quality of life arrests. The racial disparities are largely kind of concentrated in liquor law violations and, and drug possession. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, very discretionary uh, kind of offenses in terms of, you know, how the police are, you know, kind of able to determine whether or not somebody should be arrested or not. So um, so when we say li- li- liquor law violations, I mean, how, how should it, this is like guys, guys drinking on the corner, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, pretty much, yeah, guys, you know, kind of drinking in public and, you know, uh, there's a good deal of uh, kind of laws out there, including, you know, here in New York City in which, uh, you know, drinking in public, you know, does come, you know, with either a fine and in some places an arrest. And so, yeah, so this is, these are generally those types of things. And, you know, obviously drug possession is, you know, kind of as it sounds, but. Sure. Yeah. We, 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 we we know drug possession. Um, Yeah. And right. And so, you know, I mean, one of the, the features of this, right, is, is that it's highly, discretionary. I mean, I don't want to uh, confess to too much in in my life, but I I have had uh, multiple occasions in my younger days to be consuming alcoholic beverages <laughs> on the sidewalk. And it is true. One time I like I got an arrest and a, and a citation for mm-hmm. from an officer and I had to come to court and I had to pay a fine and things like that. But, you know, a half dozen other times somebody just told me to like scram right or, yep. or move it or something like that and they could have arrested me all those times and they potentially would have if i had looked different or if the officer had a different attitude toward the whole community and and the whole neighborhood um and so where you see a significant uh racial disparity in that in that kind of impact right uh, there's yeah. a right so how, how does that look so basically, it's about three times greater uh, for uh, Black Americans. Uh, mm-hmm. when you, when in specifically, kind of speaking to the liquor law violations and mm-hmm. uh, drug possession arrests. And so, uh, you know, again, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, say the nature of the discretion, right? So we don't want to necessarily say what it might be attributable to because we, we honestly, this is an aggregated up study. We can't necessarily tell. Uh, but, you know, you know, if you look, kind of look at other literature, you know, when it comes down to, you know, maybe like stop, question, or frisk, or whether you look at, you know, just some of the kind of the survey evidence on drug utilization, it does kind of bring other questions, right, about how those types of disparities do come about. And mm-hmm. so it could be the case that this, you know, could be, these could be very costly, right? I mean, it could lead to somebody going to court, uh, it could lead to somebody going to jail or even prison, you know, or, you know, given the nature of their kind of, you know, you know, uh, their criminal history. Uh, but, you know, it's, you know, also something, you know, in which we have to kind of think about, you know, the nature of the neighborhood and, you know, the demanding for police and, you know, the demand for police and, you know, how, you know, people kind of think about these offenses themselves. So we don't want to make them, we don't want to classify them as, you know, completely, you know, victimless or not, or just as a cost. We, we just kind of see them as something that's kind of important to note, you know, as we move forward. Now, uh, the other kind of factor about this is the, you know, is arrests themselves are a function of, you know, behavior that's seen, you know, by the police or reported mm-hmm. to police and also policing strategies. And so, uh, you know, there's also, you know, the element of we don't necessarily know if these are, you know, these arrests are contributing uh, to public safety. Obviously, there's some scholars out there that believe that these kind of you know, making these type of low level arrests consistently, uh, you know, are, are things that can kind of keep, you know, public safety in check. Uh, but the evidence, you know, on that seems to be, you know, fairly mixed, you know, if, if, you know, I mean, if not completely counter, 
Uh, and so one example of that would be obviously the kind of the ending of stop question and frisk as we know it, you know, here in New York City back after the Floyd ruling in 2014, uh, in which, you know, you, you know, if you look at the work of John McDonald and uh, Anthony Braga, uh, pretty much you see that, uh, you know, the, the sky didn't fall, but also the racial disparities kind of went away, right? And so, uh, you know, there are some important questions that kind of exist about how useful uh, these arrests are and, and what they do mean in, in societal terms. But uh, we're fairly agnostic on that. We just kind of report the evidence as we see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember a, a study by uh, John McDonald, Jeffrey Fagan, Amanda Geller uh, that I'd written about before. And, you know, they were looking at the sort of um, NYPD surges. It was called uh, Operation Impact, right? Yeah. And, and they found that, you know, when they did those surges into particular communities, that violent crime went down, uh, but that there was also a huge amount of, you know, stop and frisk without probable cause. And then they and then they tried to ascertain, like, what was doing more stops actually reducing violent crime or was it just the presence of the officers? And, And, you know, their contention, at least, is that doing the stops and the frisks was not having any benefit. That, you know, right. that, that, that the department had this idea, well, we have a high crime area, we've got to flood it with officers, we've got to stop lots of primarily young black men, we've got to frisk them, and that's going to bring crime down. And then they saw crime go down. And so they thought to themselves, okay, this is great. Like, we're, we're amazing. Um, but then what we saw after, after court orders and, and things like that was, this was maybe just, you know, hassling people, reducing the department's legitimacy, um, and not really, you know, impacting crime in a in a meaningful way. And I mean, I do think that the more, I mean, the more we see a deterrence effect, that to me bolsters the idea that you don't necessarily need this kind of like hyperactive policing, that they're not, they're not like out there, they're not catching criminals exactly. Yeah, I mean, in, in any of the evidence that you kind of see out there on clearance rates, I mean, we don't find any evidence of the impact of policing and, you know, increasing police force size on, on clearance rates ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, which suggests that, you know, perhaps, you know, uh, investing more in, you know, detective and investigative resources, uh, things that, you know, are really helpful to kind of getting on the ground and, and figuring out, you know, kind of how to address some of these homicides as soon as they occur. Uh, maybe that's kind of the right move, right? As opposed to, you know, kind of bringing more people into the criminal justice system. Uh, and so, you know, those are, you know, important kind of discussions that we hope that, you know, future work will, will certainly have. Uh, you know, I certainly have, you know, based on the evidence, my doubts about the kind of public safety usefulness, you know, of the, of many of these low level arrests. But again, you know, that's not something that we can necessarily discern, you know, from the evidence that we present within the paper. Right. But I mean, what, what I think, what I think we, we do see at least is that these are, um, somewhat separate questions, right? I mean, you could give different tactical orders, right? You could yeah. give different directives to the officers and say, look, like we, I mean, because I think one thing that happens in any workplace, right, is you get measured on certain things mm-hmm. and you like, you, you you try to do it, right? It's like, if your understanding is, well, we want you out there putting points on the board in some sense like then you're going to arrest people whereas if you say like no it's okay like we we don't want that we we you know arrest people for serious crimes uh but we don't need you like flooding the zone with you know misdemeanor liquor law arrests um that that might that that might work well yeah, we're also seeing, you know, other evidence that perhaps, you know, using fines, mm-hmm. you know, and using other kind of, you know, non-criminal approaches 
to uh, addressing many of these kind of low-level offenses are, are probably, you know, could also be important like substitutes for these types of arrests, right? And so, uh, you know, the goal here, you know, is obviously to to be able to improve public safety and to the effect, you know, to the extent that, you know, putting more people in the criminal justice system and exposing them to the criminal justice system and the criminogenic effects associated with it, um, you know, that it could be counterproductive at the end of the day. And so, mm-hmm. you know, finding alternative ways to kind of think about this is important. And we certainly acknowledge that. We also kind of acknowledge the fact that, you know, policing is kind of one policy lever among many. Uh, there's been some evidence, you know, that, you know, alternatives, you know, such as, you know, improving the green space, uh, maybe more kind of surgical precision with, you know, like, you know, uh, the, the approach towards like gang takedowns or, uh, you know, even the expanded access to mental health. These have all been things that have been really important and, and, and shown some really good local effects in terms of improving, you know, public safety. Summer, you know, youth summer employment is another kind of big one. Or, you know, uh, these are things that we want to consider, but we also don't necessarily know how they're going to scale up. And so, you know, when, you know, when you kind of, uh, ask this larger question, you know, uh, what happens when we reallocate a certain amount of funding from the police to another agency? The, 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 the general response that I give is that we really don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Because we haven't seen this happen in a significant and robust way. Uh, that requires, you know, a great deal of kind of uh, redefining and transforming, you know, policing in addition to many of the associated agencies and, uh, you know, having them take over those roles is, you know, it's not necessarily clear to me uh, that, you know, we would get, you know, greater public safety gains than what we achieve, uh, through policing. Uh, but it's not to say that those things can't be important. Well, I mean, also it's, I mean, I, I, I think that the spirit of this, I mean, you're, you're an economist, so it's not surprising, um, is, you know, that, look, I mean, this becomes a, a budgetary question at yeah. a certain point, right? I mean, you know, so like one of these, uh, one, one thing people found is that like street lighting, um, improves yes. public safety. And now, obviously, I, I think, you know, a city should not turn off all of its streetlights and right. then like use the savings to hire a few more police officers, right? Um, at the same time, you probably also shouldn't lay off your entire police department and, you know, make it like bright, like daylight in the middle. You know, there's, there's just a, a sort of a margin on which these different things operate um, and you can try to assess it. Uh, but that's different from a sort of... Um, I mean, there, there there are some people out there, you know, who have the view that police employment is just unrelated to to crime. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, and I think, you know, your contributions to literature and, and the overwhelming weight of the evidence is that that's just not true, right? Not that policing is the only tool we have in the universe, but that it more or less does what you would think. No, absolutely. I mean, and again, we've seen, you know, you know, for more than 20 years now of research, you know, that it, rigorous empirical research that it seems to suggest uh, that the police have a very important role uh, in terms of crime reduction. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, we don't want to view it as a panacea, but at the same time, uh, we also, you know, want to, you know, uh, you know, make sure that, you know, we have the right type of policing resources necessary uh, because, you know, for every city like New York, where we have over 30,000, you know, sworn officers, you know, in, in employment, um, you know, there are many other places throughout the country that don't necessarily have those same policing resources, but are dealing with extraordinary uh, homicide victimization levels. So, I mean, one place that I kind of think about is St. Louis, where some of my other work is kind of focused on uh, in Kansas City. And, you know, uh, these are places where, uh, you know, you tend to see just extraordinary levels of, of gun violence. And yet, you know, policing staffing levels have been fairly constant, you know, throughout the period to which we've seen this kind of escalation in, uh, in, in homicide. 
Wait, and you know, I mean, obviously, I, you know, New York always looms large in debates because it's a big city, because uh, a lot of the media is located there. But a lot of American cities are just much poorer. Yeah. And, and don't have the same uh, budgetary flexibility or ability to invest in necessarily anything. But, you know, and so this becomes a big sort of factor, right? I mean, if you have a city like St. Louis, um, they don't have a lot of public resources for, you know, all kinds of initiatives, um, but but including the police. Um, so uh, let's take a break. And then I, I do want to ask you about some of uh, the the other sort of related research you've done. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Um, so one thing that I, I know you've looked at is the uh, sort of body-worn cameras um, mm-hmm. that police officers uh, sort of increasingly wear. This is a, an idea that I feel like um, in the, you know, pundit universe that I operate in, it kind of like soared at one point. Right. Because it seemed like so easy, like, well, we can just get these cameras for everyone. And then it kind of crashed because it felt almost too easy. And people wanted like like real reform to tackle serious problems. Um, but your your research on this seems fairly um like pretty optimistic that like, no, like we we'd like we really should do this, even if it's not like the panacea for policing. No, absolutely. And so uh basically what we do is that we kind of do two things within that paper and is uh with Jens Lubbock and, and others at the University of Chicago Crime Lab. Uh, in which uh, we basically, you know, kind of get a sense of, you know, two important outcomes mm-hmm. uh, when it comes down to the implementation of body-worn camera technology in police departments throughout the United States. One of them uh, being, you know, civilian complaints, which are obviously kind of important, you know, to being able to understand the nature of policing and, you know, how the people think about the police. Uh, the other is use of force, uh, which, again, you know, is very costly uh, in societal terms and also uh, just something that can be destabilizing to, you know, people's faith in, in, in policing uh, in addition to, you know, just being harmful, you know, whether justified or not, right? And so, you know, one thing that we do is that we take a look at this kind of larger literature because there's been, you know, quite robust literature kind of spanning the social sciences, uh, you know, in the criminology, sociology, and economics, uh, you know, papers that have run these randomized control trials, right? And just saying, okay, uh, whether it be at the officer level or at the shift level, um, you know, let's randomize the assignment, right? You know, of, of body-worn cameras. Some people are going to get body-worn cameras, some are not. Uh, and then let's try to see if we can kind of, you know, estimate the impact of having the body-worn, having body-worn cameras on those two outcomes that I mentioned to you before. Yeah. Uh, and so we, by randomizing, uh, we're able to kind of get a kind of a clean interpretation, right? At least we hope to get a clean interpretation. Sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Always the dream. Yeah, we hope to get a clean interpretation. Uh, of the effect of body-worn cameras on our outcomes of interest. Uh, so it, I'll say kind of a couple things on that. The first thing is that, you know, initially speaking, we had a, a, a great deal of, of nice uh, kind of smaller scale studies uh, that kind of randomized at different levels. Uh, some kind of randomized at the officer level. Some of off- randomized at the shift level. Uh, you know, those kind of have important consequences, right? Because it's one thing to, uh, you know, to, you know, kind of, you know, assign, you know, an officer, you know, uh, a body-worn camera, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as opposed to a shift, meaning that, you know, many people within your department might get exposure to body worn cameras and that might change the nature, uh, of, you know, the policing that's taking place, uh, right. by everyone. Right. And so, uh, that kind of muddies up that kind of interpretation a little bit, but that's okay. We still kind of see some important effects, uh, through those kind of early small RCTs in Vegas and elsewhere, you know, in the country. Uh, so then we've also seen, you know, things that have done at the shift in the precinct level. Um, and so, you know, a couple of, of the larger studies, you know, one of them being in Boston, another being in, in DC and another more recent one in New York, you know, all kind of, you know, uh, you know, have, you know, a bit more of a larger sample to deal with. Uh, but at the same time, you still have this question of spillover effects, right? Because of the fact that, uh, you know, it's not as if, you know, people, you know, officers are assigned, you know, body worn cameras kind of live in silos, right? And they don't interact or have shifts. Uh, or calls that they have to respond to with other officers. And so you can kind of contaminate your, your treatment effect in that way. And that again kind of leads to kind of a mixture of evidence when it comes down to, uh, you know, the impact, you know, of, of body worn camera adoption on say, uh, you know, use of force. Now we, you know, within this literature, uh, it seems to be fairly, uh, consistent in showing that, you know, body worn cameras do have an impact on, on civilian complaints. We do see a reduction in civilian complaints. I believe it was somewhere around like 14% or, okay. or somewhere along those lines. You know, uh, one thing that was less clear was the use of force thing. And so, uh, you know, I, I kind of putting all those issues on the table, there had been a more recent paper, uh, by a, uh, a PhD candidate at, at, at Chicago. Uh, that actually said, well, let's do this. Well, we know some departments, you know, throughout the country kind of adopted body-worn cameras early, some of them later. Uh, and there are important constraints uh, to being able to obtain that type of technology. It's not as if, you know, a, you know, a chief said, oh, I want, you know, a certain X number of, of cameras in my department and they just arrive, you know, in an Amazon box the, you uh-huh. know, two days later. <laughs> uh, you know, these are things that take a long time and getting the resources together to kind of to be able to implement them. You know, uh, and to be able to kind of record footage and have access to them and determining all the rules. These are really important institutional constraints. So, uh, that student then goes on to say, all right, well, let's kind of leverage the, you know, body worn camera, camera adoption through thousands of law enforcement agencies throughout the country as right. instead, right? So we can kind of deal with that small sample size issue. And. Uh, what they end up finding is that there's significant declines, uh, in, in the use of force after the adoption of body worn cameras for all, you know, departments that kind of adopted early versus the ones that adopted a little later. Hmm. Um, you know, also kind of use it in that, in that instance, I, I believe the national kind of estimates kind of focus on, uh, fatal homicides, you know, so, you know, the use of, the use of fatal force by an officer. They also kind of do something really smart in, you know, kind of using, uh, data from the state of New Jersey. Uh, for non-fatal uh, use of force interactions and also find a decline there. Um, and so you're able to kind of look at it from two different prisms and it kind of gives, you know, kind of a new and a refreshed interpretation of what you end up seeing when you implement body-worn cameras and, you know, their impact on use of force. And so, uh, you know, those things kind of make us very optimistic uh, about the nature of uh, use of force. And they also seem to be, uh, you know, fairly, uh, you know, uh, they, they seem to be cost-benefit friendly. Um, when, when you kind of, uh, you know, put out a, a few kind of potential, 
uh, kind of estimates on the table and, and then just kind of estimate what it sees, at least from a narrow perspective of the of the government, right? I mean, we can't really talk about maybe the societal kind of consequences for uh, doing those types of things. And there's a lot of things that happen between, uh, you know, you know, the interactions, you know, that also we can't necessarily comment on, right? Like the nature of you know, being on camera itself changes the behavior uh, sure. of an officer. It also changes maybe the behavior of the individual that might be in an interaction with an officer. And so uh, those are other kind of important considerations with this literature. Right. But it it, it, it seems it seems pretty good. Uh, so I, another one I, I wanted to ask you about was um, the, uh, the, the, the gun reform in Missouri. Yes. Where you have some research into, um, but basically they made it easier to get guns. Right. And what happened? So essentially... Uh, within the state of Missouri. Uh, so let me back up just a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, for many people, you, the, the way in which you should probably, probably view the nature of gun control laws in the United States is that you have, uh, laws that are on a book, books at the federal level. And then there's what happens at the state level, right? And so, mm-hmm. uh, through the Brady Act, um, background check requirements, you know, are required for all, uh, licensed gun dealers, people that are in the business, quote unquote, of, uh, you know, of selling firearms. And mm-hmm. so, uh, any, you know, person that's a licensed gun dealer has to conduct a be- background check through the FBI. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, it takes a certain amount of time to do. And, you know, there's all the other kind of, you know, kind of wrinkles with it. But uh, what's not less clear, though, are the kind of the private sales, right? The private sales uh, kind of fall under the jurisdiction of the states. And so uh, if, you know, you wanted to sell me a firearm, uh, depending on what state you're in, that will determine whether or not we had to get a background check or whether you had to have a license or, or, or something else. And so in Missouri, uh, these private sales for, you know, I guess decades go dating back to the prohibition era, uh, required a permit, right? You had to get a permit to purchase a firearm. Okay. And so, uh, basically this permit was, you know, had a bit more, uh, of a rigorous background check. So they had, you know, access to arrest records. They had access, uh, to, you know, civil proceedings. Uh, things that, you know, uh, the FBI wouldn't necessarily have access to. And so you just, anytime you wanted to purchase a firearm, you went down to your local sheriff's office, you know, you went through the background checks. I, I think sometime in the eighties, like, you know, they might've acquired you to, uh, to get, you know, a letter of recommendation from like a clergy member. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, but basically, you know, you'll go through the, the usual, uh, type of application process going from one kind of county to the next. And that's interesting. It's a, it's a law that went so sort of like back before the modern era of gun control politics. That's right. Because, you know, during, you know, during the twenties and thirties, obviously it was a kind of a different concern, uh, with, with firearms and, um, you know, other types of automatic weapons that were kind of posing problems to public safety during that time period. And so, uh, yeah, this book, you know, these laws have been on the books for a long time. All the anecdotal evidence suggests that, you know, people cer- certainly kind of abided by them and they were meaningful. And there were, you know, thousands and thousands of per- permit applications that were being processed by, you know, sheriff's offices every year, right? Because it's something that you do on a per gun basis. And so mm-hmm. what ended up happening was that in 2007, they repealed this law. Mm-hmm. And so basically uh, what you have then done is that you removed any barrier to the secondary markets for firearms. And so, you know, many sales are just taking place and nobody's noticing. Uh, there's also kind of like a pent up demand issue. There's so many people that, uh, you know, probably thought about it because it was a, I think it was maybe the cost of may have been like 10 or $15 per permit or something like that. Okay. And so, you know, it's also somewhat of a kind of a monetary savings as well. But uh, you're talking about a huge gun supply shock to the primary 
firearm market that obviously has an important role in kind of uh, feeding, you know, the secondary kind of underground markets. And so, uh, you know, what I essentially do within that paper is that I kind of do two things. One, I just kind of ask, you know, what is the impact of this law on uh, gun proliferation? Mm-hmm. You know, using kind of two proxy measures, uh, the fraction of suicides committed with a firearm, which is, tends to be like a gold standard now, uh, because we don't have administrative data, right? Sure. We don't know who owns what guns. Right. And so we usually kind of use these types of proxies. And then also the federal background checks that I mentioned before, right? Because that gives you some sense of gun activity within the state beyond what you're able to kind of see through this proxy measure. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I also kind of look at, you know, the racial disparities uh, and homicide that kind of result from this permit to purchase law of repeal. Uh, because one thing that's kind of interesting, when you look at the gun control policy literature, mm-hmm. uh, most, much of it kind of focuses on a, on a very kind of aggregate basis, right? They, they don't really speak to race, but as we kind of mentioned, you know, or discussed earlier on uh, in our conversation, uh, Black Americans do account, you know, for about, you know, half of the homicides and 13% of the population. And it's pretty much uh, very similar, uh, you know, kind of numbers that you see, you know, in the state of Missouri, right? And so... You know, one thing that we, you know, I'm able to kind of able to say is that, all right, well, let's just let's just see what happens to gun proliferation, you know, before and after the repeal. And, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting is that you do not really see much evidence at all uh, for changes in, uh, in, in gun homicides, you know, for white, you know, Missourians within okay. the state. Uh, but you do see a very large change uh, among black Missourians within the state. It was about a 24% increase in just the proliferation uh, of firearms involved in suicides. Right. Uh, but then there was also, you know, just this exponential growth in uh, state-level background checks. I think it was about 1,400 uh, background checks per 100,000. So there was a lot of activity in gun markets. So that's kind of like a first kind of order thing. So there was the law did seem to have a huge gun supply shock, you know, uh, within the state. The second thing that, you know, kind of happened within the state is homicide increased primarily among black Missourians within the state. And so that increase in uh, homicide, I think it was about an additional 13 black firearm homicides per 100,000 uh, after the repeal. But there was also about a reduction of about four non-gun homicides uh, per 100,000 within the state. So there's an important weapon substitution effect. People were kind of, you know, stopping, you know, committing, you know, homicides through other means, you know, and now we're picking up guns because they're just so readily available. Uh, And this was primarily among kind of black, you know, victims ages 15 to 24. So this is, we're talking about younger people within the state. This really interesting paper, it's, I, you know, like anybody, I'm stubborn and I don't like to change my mind. Um, yeah. And, you know, I had been really pretty skeptical of some of this, um, you know, federal efforts to like tighten up background check rules yeah. uh, in various ways because, you know, because it usually comes up after some like spectacular, you know, mass shooting that horrifies people and captures right. national attention. And when you look at it, most of the times the shooters in those situations like wouldn't have been stopped by, by a background yeah. check necessarily. So it, it fueled a, a lot of skepticism. Uh, but what you really show here is that at least in this Missouri reform, um, it was just like a huge boost in the, the number of firearms in circulation, right? I mean, that's why you see such a large impact, um, in the suicides index as well as on the homicides, right? And so it's like, I don't know, like everybody got a lot. A lot more guns after this. Yeah, uh, and I mean, we're, and we're talking about is very segregated gun violence, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, St. Louis is one of, and, and this, and also to a similar extent, Kansas City, you know, are two of the most segregated cities in the country. 
Right. Uh, we're talking about the concentration of gun violence in a very small handful of black neighborhoods within both cities. And, you know, when you have that kind of level of gun violence, I kind of remind people, like, what do you do, right? I mean, like, you know, a lot of times we tend to focus on, like, certain socio-demographic characteristics that people, you know, uh, you know, feel as if play an important role. And they do play an important role to an extent, right? You know, things like poverty, um, you know, uh, unemployment and, and kind of other things that we that we know kind of can be uh, important to kind of improving life chances of many young people within these neighborhoods. Uh, at the same time, though, like the the type the the disparities that we see in homicide vastly outweigh the disparities that we see in any of those measures. Mm -hmm. And even when you kind of look at you know other work that's kind of been done within this space, we're talking about generally a handful of people, you know, loosely speaking, uh, sure. that are generally responsible, you know, for you know homicides within uh, many of these communities. And so we're not, you know, it, 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 it has to be more than poverty, right? And so one of the things that I end up saying is that, you know, well, you know, if you step into that level of violence, right? And I actually, within the paper, I kind of like show a map and there's like just all, mm -hmm. you know, the homicides that take place over a certain, you know, time period after the repeal and before the repeal. If you lived in that neighborhood and you stepped on somebody's shoe, or you bumped somebody the wrong way, or you got into a minor dispute, you know, what happens, right? Like, what would you do? Right. Uh, if you go to the police, right? I mean, like, they can't escort you every day, uh, you know, to and from the store or other places. Uh, you know, not everybody can just get up and move, right? I mean, it, and, and so, you know, in, in many ways, like, you know, it becomes, you know, uh, the preemptive motive to stay alive kind of kicks in, right? It's, it's really important and can lead to uh, kind of like these arms races of sorts. Uh, in which, you know, carrying more guns can be quite rational, right? Because, you know, a lot of times we say, why would anybody want to carry an illegal gun? It usually has all these enhancements and, you know, you know, cops don't like guns and it can lead to lengthy prison sentences, et cetera. Uh, well, I mean, maybe because you wanted to stay alive. We don't want to justify gun violence, but at the same time, uh, when you see the levels of gun violence that you see in post-reform Missouri, uh, they are quite extraordinary. And so, you know, one thing that, you know, that kind of also plays a role in that is the nature of policing. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about policing before, you know, well, after the repeal, well, something that's kind of fascinating to me is that the weapons related arrests uh, actually declined during this period, right? Mm -hmm. So you have many, many, many more homicides that are being committed using firearms, but you have these huge declines in arrests. Weapons arrests declined about, about 44%, and I think aggregated assault arrests, which, you know, often involve like a firearm, sure. uh, fell by 125%. And, but there were no, that was only among, you know, potential black arrestees. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was, again, there was no significant effect among white arrestees. And so, uh, again, that is more so attributable to the segregated nature of gun violence, mm -hmm. uh, but also, you know, this kind of, you know, lack in productivity uh, in policing during this kind of, you know, very, you know, high escalation period of gun violence. And so uh, these things can kind of, you know, have very large kind of effects that feed into one another. Mm -hmm. You know, when, you know, people are able to kind of murder with impunity, they recognize that there might not be as much of a consequence. Right. Uh, to committing, you know, these, to committing these crimes. And as a result, uh, you know, there's, you know, you can have a type of, you know, gun violence, persistent gun violence, uh, that you see in places like St. Louis and elsewhere. Um, you know, these, this type of explanation, this kind of preemption model that I kind of describe and, and more so attribute to, uh, two of my other collaborators on another project, Daniel Flaherty and Rajiv Seti at, at Columbia and Barnard. Uh, you know, you know, these types of, you know, kind of this type of preemptive violence it, it can be quite important and kind of goes beyond uh, some of those traditional explanations that I gave to you before. Right, right, right. I mean, you're essentially, I mean, it it helps 
I think contextualize, I think some of the um, often off the rails politics uh, yeah. in the United States, right? Where Missouri at around this time, it's, it's becoming a very red state, a very Republican state. The political yeah. center of gravity has gone to the white areas, the rural areas of the state where people, I don't know. I mean, they, they have whatever feelings people have about guns out there. And it genuinely is true that in those communities, it doesn't lead to an increase in, in murders or, or violence, right? right. It's, it, there, there are some very negative consequences, but they're concentrated among African-American victims who themselves are concentrated residentially yeah. in really just a handful of areas of, of the state and can be sort of, I don't want to say, you know, so it, it, it doesn't impact the lives of the people who have the sort of the deciding votes um, in, in yeah. this policy. Measure. Yeah, and, and one thing that's kind of fascinating is that there is a when you, you kind of look at the, you know, kind of the survey support uh, for these types of uh, gun, de, you know, deregulatory gun measures uh, in Missouri, there's a huge divide between the largely rural area, areas in the rest of the state and what you see in the more urban areas in like Kansas City and St. Louis. Uh, you know, one thing that, you know, is also kind of interesting about this is that, you know, it was kind of, you know, passed fairly discreetly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, you know, again, you know, this is just, you know, another kind of reform that in Missouri's had a series of reform after, you know, reforms afterwards that, mm-hmm. you know, could also be kind of important here. But, you know, uh, you know, you have these series of reforms in this very kind of important rural urban divide, but something that you really pointed out here that's kind of key is the fact that, you know, in most neighborhoods and you go, this is true, not just in Missouri, but elsewhere in the country. You can go years without seeing a homicide within your neighborhood, uh-huh. um, you know, uh, and so it can actually be a quite an extraordinary event to kind of experience a homicide in many of those kind of places in other parts of the state. Uh, but, you know, one thing that, you know, again, my two collaborators have kind of, you know, put an interesting framing on is to say that, you know, they have this paper called Peaceful Kingdoms and War Zones. And uh, they kind of outline the fact that in many of these places, uh, like the rural parts of Missouri, uh, there's usually just kind of like a unitary motive, right? Like to kind of engage in violence. It's deeply interper, you know, kind of personal, uh, and not one that usually just kind of involves like acquaintances, right? It's not this kind of preemptive effect that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. However, when you look at places like St. Louis and Kansas City, uh, there's a sense of danger that kind of exists in those areas, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, kind of make people think strategically about whether or not they should be using a firearm. And so the actions that I choose, right, the actions that I decide to take with respect to using violence when I kind of get into a dispute uh, are also being considered by the person that's the second party to the dispute and vice versa. And uh, those types of things can have like these huge multiplier effects in, in places like St. Louis. Uh, one thing that's also kind of interesting, you know, to kind of point out here and, you know, kind of in, from a political sense, probably uh, kind of, again, shows a bit of a divide within, within the state is that, you know, even gun, you know, officers, officers themselves kind of experience uh, increased exposure uh, to gun violence, right? And so uh, officer gun assaults after the repeal increased by about 75%. And so uh, there are more people uh, exposing officers to gun violence after the repeal as well. And so uh, these types of effects, again, can all kind of come together in a, in a, a very important way and lead to some of the sustained increases in gun violence that we've seen in St. Louis and Kansas City and perhaps other parts of the, of the country as well. 
Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, this is, this is a show for another time, but I mean, the, the, the impact, yeah, I mean, on officer conduct of yeah. being in an environment where, you know, a large share of the population has firearms and there's a lot of shooting as opposed to, uh, I mean, it's not that there's no issues I think that people could have with policing in the United Kingdom or, or elsewhere. Uh, but when officers are operating in a context where you don't have that level of um, weaponry, it's going to have an impact on their behavior uh, as well. And, you know, and then, and then the, the stakes of any kind of interaction between yeah. police officers and, and civilians, right. It, there's in, in St. Louis, there's a presumption that, civilian to civilian or civilian to police officer that the person on the other side of that interaction uh, may well have a gun, may well use it. And that's, I mean, to me, at least not like a super healthy way to be living our lives. Not at all. Um, Okay. So thank you so much. Uh, Morgan Williams Jr. Um, has been really great. Uh, I think uh, I learned a lot. Um, And thanks as always to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis, uh, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.